Todd, where's Todd? Todd Wildey, can you help me with this? Todd built this wall, so. Thank you, Todd. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for those who are skilled at building things. Uh, Lord, thank you that you are skilled at building this church. And so uh, we've come here today, God, because we want you to build us. Uh, We want to be strong, firm, and steadfast. And so, Lord Jesus, we do stop, and we stand amazed at who you are, and we've gathered in this place because we want to know you better. We want to hear your voice in our hearts. Thank you for these testimonies of baptism. Uh, Lord, the stories that you write, who can compare, uh, God, with what you do? So, Lord, uh, we gather in this place in honor of your name, and we ask that you would be present among us in a special way, drawing all of our hearts to you, for we pray this in your name, amen. It's the holiday season, and as one Christmas song wants to remind us, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But truth be told, the lyric should probably be changed to... It's the most stressful time of the year. Family, finances, exams, coming home from college and trying to reintegrate back into life here, work stuff, loneliness. The Christmas season is a time that's filled with great stress and difficulty. Now inevitably, In the midst of that stress and difficulty, someone will remind us, keep your eyes on the true meaning of Christmas. And by that they mean, Christmas is not ultimately about presents or about travel or about time off from school. It's ultimately about Jesus, and that's true. And for this reason, we want to encourage you, and you might be encouraged to come to the Christmas Eve service. Uh, to read Advent devotionals during this Advent season, Uh, on Christmas Day to read the Christmas story, maybe to volunteer in a homeless shelter this holiday season, all in an attempt to keep our eyes uh, sort of on Jesus. And those are wonderful things. But let me say that if this Christmas season what you understand the true meaning of Christmas to be, being thinking about Jesus in the midst of what's going on in life as being the center, there's more to it than that. You see, this baby that's born in Bethlehem is not just a beautiful, wonderful story. This baby is the Lord of the universe. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Even while he is that baby, he is holding all things together by the power of his word. 
And if you really want to understand the true meaning of Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas does involve who we are looking at during Christmas, but it also involves who we are looking to during Christmas. This wreath that hangs on this makeshift wall, that wreath represents the beauty, but also the weight and the stress of the Christmas season. When an inexperienced builder tried to hang the wreath, it didn't go all that well. And the weight of the season brought all the beauty crashing down. But you see that the wreath now stands there, easily supported, strong, firm, and steadfast. And what we want to talk about this morning is during this stressful holiday season, you have two choices. To try to hang the weight and the stress of the season on a nail that's simply going to give way and fall, or to hang it on something that is strong, firm, and steadfast. How do we have our experience this Christmas be like this situation and not like the one that happened before? Please take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22. If you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page 570. Isaiah chapter 22, let me say as you're turning, for those who've been following along with us in this series in Isaiah, we're skipping Isaiah 20 and 21. It's not because they're not important, it's just that we've kind of preached that message. It's the similar message that we looked at last week in Isaiah 18 and 19. There are more countries listed and more things that God has to say in 20 and 21, but the point is the same. God loves all the people of the world, And God is interacting with all the nations of the world, not just the Jewish people. And that for each people and each person on earth, God sees both our sins and has a desire to rescue us. Which brings us to chapter 22. Chapter 22 is a little confusing. I say that almost about every chapter in Isaiah. Let me just tell you something that that helps understand what's going on here. Isaiah 22 is a prophecy. It's about the coming invasion of Assyria. Assyria is going to invade Judah. We'll read the historical story of that when we get to Isaiah 36. Isaiah 22 happens before Isaiah 36. And Isaiah 22 is looking forward to that time in just a little while when Assyria will invade Judah. We begin with the first eight verses of Isaiah 22. A prophecy against the valley of vision. What troubles you now that you have all gone up on the roofs? You town so full of commotion. You city of tumult and revelry. Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled together. They have been captured without using the bow. All you who were caught were taken prisoner together having fled while the enemy was still far away. Therefore, I said, turn away from me, let me weep bitterly. 
Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. The Lord, the Lord Almighty has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision. A day of battering down the walls and crying out to the mountains. Elam takes up the quiver with her charioteers and horses. Kerr uncovers the shield. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots and horsemen are posted at the city gates. The Lord stripped away the defenses of Judah. Now stop there for a moment. Israel's in trouble here. This is a picture, a vision of them in trouble. But the thing I want us to notice, this coming invasion of Assyria, is how they got into the predicament that they're in. Verse 5. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision. And the first half of verse 8. The Lord stripped away the defenses of Judah. God is the one who's caused Judah to be in this situation. He's already prophesied that he's going to bring the Assyrian nation against them so that he can rescue them. But the point for us is they are in this place because God has planned for them to be in this place. That is very, very important. So it is with this Christmas season. Whatever goes on, whatever stress comes your way, whatever weight you feel like you have to carry, God has either caused or allowed that into your life. After all, who put you in the family that you're in? God did. Who has allowed your exam schedule to be what it is? God has. Who's the one that has allowed your financial situation to be what it is? God has all the money in the universe. If he's not chosen to inject more financial wealth into your situation, he's ultimately chosen not to do that. If you're traveling this Christmas season and your flight gets delayed because of weather, who's in charge of the weather? Even if it gets delayed because of incompetence at the airline, who allowed that to happen? The important thing to remember and understand, I don't know what will happen this Christmas season, but there is a stress and a weight that goes with it, and you must and I must remember the Lord has allowed it. The Lord has planned it. Israel is where they are because God put them there. And where are they? Well, it says in verse 1 and in verse 5, they're in the valley of vision. Now, there is no valley in Israel named the valley of vision. It's a metaphorical description and the metaphorical description is not describing any particular historical valley. It's giving the idea that God has led them into a valley. God has led them into a difficult place. Why is it called the Valley of Vision? Because it's a place where they get to see who they look to in trouble. The Valley of Vision is it reveals where their eyes are 
when they go through difficulty and stress and trouble. So it is for us this Christmas season. Whatever the stress is, whatever the difficulty, you may have some ideas where it's going to come from. But when it arrives, you will be there because the Lord has led you to that place to see where will you look in times of trouble. Well, where did Judah look? Verse 8, middle of verse 8. And you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. Now, notice that word looked in verse 8. That's the Hebrew word nabat, N-A-B-A-T. When Assyria is invading, what did Judah do? Well, they looked to see what weapons they had to fight them off. Verse 9, you saw that the walls of the city of David were broken through in many places. You stored up water in the lower pool. Do you see that word saw in verse 9? That's the Hebrew word ra'ah, R-A apostrophe A. Ra'ah and nabat are synonyms, and they mean to look to. The inhabitants of Judah are like, there's an army coming, and they check out their defenses and think, I don't think this wall is going to hold. Verse 10, you counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. You can see him going around saying, one, two, three, four, five, that house has got to go, that house has got to go, that house has got to go, that house has got to go. If we take the stones out of those houses, we can repair and rebuild these walls. Verse 11, you built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Stop there. If anybody were to look at what Judah was doing, it feels like a commendation. The American business mindset, peoples of the world would look and go, good job. You saw there was trouble coming and you did something about it. You paid close attention. You got a big army coming to invade you. You counted your weapons. You looked at your defenses. You saw what resources you had. You were on the ball. Well done. Likewise, you and I, this holiday season, some of us may have been budgeting for Christmas for some time. We know it's going to be financially difficult. We've been saving up for it. Some of us go, you know what? I can already tell you the family dinner is going to be a disaster. <laughs> and we're planning. We're not talking about this. We're not talking about this. We're not talking about this at Christmas dinner. Some of us may have added in some extra days into the travel schedule just in case the weather is bad. Some of us may be planning. We're going to come home a couple days before school starts. Some of you may have looked at your exam schedule and said, you know what? I got some hard exams coming. I'm going to have to make sure I set aside time to study. Some of you have been thinking about coming home and staying back with parents after you've been away at school and you're thinking to yourself, this is going to be tricky. I got to be careful how I do this. And the world would look at that and go, well done. You saw the trouble that was coming. You took stock of what you had as your resources. And you put the plan into action. Good job. But look what God says in the middle of verse 11. But you did not look... That's the word nabat, N-A-B-A-T, the same word that was in verse 8. 
you did not look to the one who made it or have regard, that's the word ra'ah, R-A apostrophe A that we translated as see in verse nine. You did not literally see the one who planned it long ago. God says the problem is, Israel, you looked at your problem, you looked at your resources, you applied your resources to solve your problem, but you didn't bother to look to me. This is why it's called the valley of vision. Where are your eyes? Well, Judah's eyes are on their resources. We got a broken down wall. We got to fix it. We got an army coming. We got to count our weapons. We may be under siege. We got to make sure we got water. And God says, but you didn't look to me. Now, I know your response, same as mine. Well, does that mean we shouldn't plan anything? Does that mean we shouldn't have a budget? Does that mean we shouldn't look at the schedule and think that family dinner may not go very well? Does this mean we shouldn't make travel plans or we shouldn't plan out when we're going to study for our exams? I'm not saying that, and I don't believe that God is saying that. I think something much more subtle is going on. The question is not about whether you have plans or don't have plans. Two people can have a budget for the Christmas season. One did it out of self-reliance. The other did it out of obedience to God. It's not the fact of whether you have a budget. It's who are you looking to? The charge that God is laying at the feet of Judah is self-dependence, self-reliance. Where did they look in times of trouble? They looked to themselves. And God says, you didn't bother to look to me. Well, how do you know if you're looking to God? It is subtle and it's tricky. One way you can know What do you do when your plans don't go the way you wanted them to go? What do you do when the thing that you've been working for, the budget, gets blown? Or the exam schedule you're not able to study like you thought you were going to? What do you do when all the plans you've made go awry? Do you think, I got to make some new plans? Or do you stop and pray? When you're lying on your bed thinking through, do you think to yourself, you know what, if I can just, when tomorrow comes, I'm going to send these texts and we're going to get this taken care of. Do you think, I'm just going to borrow some money out of this account and put it over into this account and when this is all done, I'll just pay that account back. Do you think to yourself, you know what, that went badly, but I'm just going to grin and bear it. I'm just going to try to get through the next 24 hours and I'm going to be done. Or do you lay on your bed and think, God actually wanted me to be in the middle of this valley. What's he up to? God planned for this Christmas dinner to be stressful. What's he up to? It's very, very subtle. And to outward appearance, to everybody else, it may look like you've put all your plans in place as a good Christian person. But God knows, and you and I probably know too, if at the heart of those plans is a reliance and a dependent on self versus a reliance and a dependence on God. Well, what should we do if in the next week or two we find ourselves 
making this mistake, such a common and easy mistake for all of us to make. We find ourselves having relied on our own abilities and our own strength. What should we do? Verses 12 and 13. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. The proper response when you and I fall into the all too common sin of self-reliance and self-dependence is to simply repent. It's to say to the Lord, Man, Lord, I did it again. Lord, I'm sorry. I tried to fix the conversation at Christmas dinner. I tried to fix the travel schedule by yelling at the flight attendant. I tried to fix the finances by just trying to find more money someplace. I tried to do this. The proper response is to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I got into the valley of trouble and I started counting my resources. And I should have spent some time talking to you about it. I'm sorry. That unfortunately is not what Judah did. And it's not what we do sometimes. What they did is weird. It's a strange combination of revelry and fatalism. Now at first glance, you're like, what in the world? They throw a party and then they say, we're just going to die. But if you think about it, This is actually how we sometimes respond in times of self-reliance. Take the student, for example, that's got exams coming up this week. You may spend a whole bunch of time studying and then simply go out and party because you're like, you know what, I'm going to fail anyway. (laughs) That's what the people of Judah are doing. When you look to yourself, there's no hope in that. And so you muster all of your resources and you say, you know what? We got everything planned. We spent the money. We tried our best. It's going to be bad anyway. Let's just live with it. God's saying, that's not what I have for you. That's not what I want for you. Judah, because their eyes were fixed on themselves, at the end of the day, they had no hope. They didn't have enough weapons. They couldn't build a big enough wall. And they went and they did all the stuff that they could do. And they just simply said, it's hopeless. See, that's what the self-reliant, self-dependent person does at some point. If God's led you into this valley, whatever the enemy is that's coming is going to be too big for your resources. (laughs) And at some point, you just throw up your hands and say, well, it is what it is. That is not why Jesus came. That is not what God wants for you. Well, what will be the result of the person who is self-reliant? Here we're going to look in the second half of chapter 22. And let me just explain. The first half, verses 1 to 14, are a general assessment of how all of Judah is doing. God looks out and sees the general attitude in the whole country, and he says, it is for the most part an attitude of self-reliance and self-dependence. It's a whole country that have forgotten to look to me in times of trouble. From verses 15 to 25, we see this in two individuals. So we move from the sort of corporate level down to the individual level. 
And God tells us about two people, one named Shebna and the other named Eliakim. And in their two very different experiences, we see the results of self-reliance versus the result of dependence on God. So let's look at it. Verse 15, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, go say to this steward, to Shebna, the palace administrator. Now Shebna is like the prime minister. He's like the second in command. He's like the chief of staff. He runs things for the king. And God says, go talk to the second in command. Verse 16, what are you doing here? And who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here, hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place on the rock? What Shebna is doing is in the midst of the invasion of, of the coming invasion of Assyria, he's made all the plans. He got all the chariots together. He planned the fixing of the wall. He counted all the weapons, and he knows there's no way we're going to beat this army. And so he's off building a grave for himself. He's like, well, at least when I die, I want to be buried in a nice monument to me. Because the interesting thing is self-reliance and self-dependence are twins to self-interest. And so because his eyes are fixed on himself, he thinks, well, if I die, I'd like to have a nice grave. What will be the result of such self-reliance and self-dependence? Verses 17 to 19. Beware the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die. And there the chariots you were so proud of will become a disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from your office and you will be ousted from your position. The problem is a self-reliant, self-dependent person is useless to God. It's like a nail that's driven barely into the drywall. It can't hold any weight. And God says, you think you have a lot of power and authority, but you're useless to me. And the result is God says, I can't have you in this position. I need someone who can carry some weight. And so he says to Shebna, you're just going to be thrown away and deposed. But, verse 20, in that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him. Its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. God says, but there is somebody in Judah who can carry a lot of weight. See, it's like the difference between Saul and David. Saul is only interested in about himself. And God says, well, what good are you as king of Israel? I can't hang any weight on you. But David, 
is a man after God's own heart. So is Eliakim. And God says, there's a man in the kingdom who looks to me and not to himself. And do you see how he's described, verse 23? Like a nail driven into the wall. Now, please understand this illustration. Todd Wildey, who came up here and helped me, he's a builder. I called him this week and said, Todd, would you build me a wall? And so he built a wall. There actually happens to be a stud in the middle of that wall, as you would expect. When I went to hang the wreath, I just picked a spot that looked good to me, and I tried to hang the wreath. I didn't hit the stud. It was in the drywall. The wreath fell. Todd, who is the builder of the wall, knows where the stud is, and when he hammered the nail into that stud, it can hold not only the weight of that wreath, but a lot more weight as well. What God is saying is, is when you and I are self-reliant, we will carry no weight. We are simply people who picked where in the drywall we go, we hit a few times, and then the weight of the Christmas season is put on us, and everything comes crashing down. And God's point is, I built the wall. I designed the valley. I led you into it. If you would look to me, I will take you as that nail and drive you deep into a solid place. And no matter what the weight is, you will hold that weight and not give way. It's a beautiful picture. And God says to Shemna, it's not that he doesn't like him. He's like, what good are a bunch of nails hidden into the drywall? They can't hold anything. But Eliakim, he's one who will look to me. And as the builder and architect of the house, I will show him where to be driven into the ground. And he will stand firm. See, the language is powerful. Verse 22. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Does that, word, does that language sound familiar at all? It should. It's said of Jesus in the book of Revelation. The ultimate example of the non-self-reliant person, the one who is dependent on God, is Jesus. That when he came, he did not look to himself, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He said, here I am, Lord, I've come to do your will. Jesus came to this earth not to figure out where in the drywall he wanted to go, but to allow God the Father to drive him deep into a firm place. And the point is, because Jesus, more than anybody else, relied on God and was directed by God, God has made him strong enough to hold the weight of the world. All the sins of all humanity, all the stress, all the difficulty, he has hung on Jesus, and Jesus has not given way. It's also interesting, this language about keys and authority. It also sounds a lot like what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16. And the point is, it's not just Jesus that can be driven as a strong peg into the ground. You and I can too. 
that if we follow the example of Jesus and say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. This isn't the Christmas season I wanted. This is not how I wanted it to go, but this is the valley you led me into. You show me how to get through this valley. When you and I do that, we will be a strong peg. Please hear me. There is a lot of stress associated with Christmas. It's because there is great spiritual warfare. What God is looking for, who in this congregation will be a strong peg? Because what happens to Eliakim? God says, I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him. By this he means for us today, our biological families and our spiritual family. God's looking for somebody in every family, in every church, in every situation. Who is going to be the nail driven into the stud? I just need one because I'm going to hang the weight of the stress of the season on them. Everybody else may give way to anxiety, but God says, if you today will realize that I planned the valley, I planned the stress, I know the best way through it. If you will do what God asks, you will be that nail. And he will drive you firmly into the stud of the wall that he's built. And no matter what he hangs on you, you will not give way. See, to remember the true meaning of Christmas is not just to think about Jesus. It's not just to look at Jesus. It is to look to Jesus. That this baby is the Lord of the universe. The governments of the world are on his shoulders. He can bear the weight and does bear the weight of all the sin and all the authority and all the things in this world. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. And the offer to you and I is, look to Jesus, do what he did. He did not say, here I am, I've come to do my own will. Here I am, Lord, I've come to do your will. And when he says that, he can carry the weight of the universe on his shoulders. And if you make the same choice that he did, and you look to him, there is nothing that will come this Christmas season that will pull you out of that wall. There is no amount of difficulty there is no amount of stress. There is no amount of suffering. There is no amount of struggle that will cause you to give way. Now I look at this and I think, man, Lord, how in the world did you time this for December 16th? <laughs> I didn't think this is what we were going to be talking about. We knew we were going to be in this chapter. But listen, Isaiah 22 is a prophecy it's a prophecy about trouble coming in the future. And I'm going to go way out on a limb here and make a prophecy this morning. You're going to have some trouble this Christmas season. <laughs> Something's not going to go right. If your solution at that time is to look to yourself, your resources, your plans, your ability to talk, your ability to go and hide, your ability to maneuver through the situation, your ability to get people to do what you want them to do, you will be like a nail in the drywall and whatever happens, you will fall. 
But I'm telling you, before it happens, please remember this passage. Please remember this sermon. Whatever trouble you go through, the Lord is leading you into it to see where you're going to look. And if in that moment, when you feel the weight of the season resting on your shoulders, if you say to yourself, I am here because the Lord has led me here. Lord, I will do what you tell me to do. Nothing will move you. Nothing will shake you. The one who is with you, what he opens, no one can shut. (laughs) No one. Not even your crazy family or my crazy family. Not even the weather. The f- Nothing. And what he shuts, no one can open. The self-reliant person will simply crumble. The one who looks to God cannot be moved. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I want to be a firm peg driven strong into the stud of this world. I want that for each person in this room. Lord, I know for some, this message may go in one ear and out the other. They've had their plans and they're sure their plans are going to work. Lord, I pray you'd have mercy on them and when those plans don't work, God, they would remember what you said. But Lord, there are some here today who are in the midst of their planning, going to stop, go back and pray. They're going to look to you. They're going to decide not to complain and instead realize that you're the one that's allowed this. God, I pray that you would help them to fix their eyes on Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and showing us this example. Thank you for teaching us that if we are reliant upon God, we can carry the weight of the world because we have God's strength flowing through us. Jesus, thank you that at this Christmas season, we not only are moved by the fact that you became human, we're saved by that fact. And that you became one of us to help us carry the weights of this life. Jesus, you said in this world we will have trouble, but you've left us your peace. May through your spirit we experience that peace and power and strength. All authority in heaven and earth is yours, Jesus. And I claim that authority for these, my brothers and sisters, as we travel through this wonderful but stressful time. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.